question. I do hope that we get something. It'd be nice if we got snow, just because it's such a rare thing. Yeah, one of my friends had shared um, one of the newscasts, I guess they said that even into Thursday, we could be getting another round of snow. So I don't know, I'm thinking, are we gonna be home all week? That's nice. Well, wow. <laughs> true. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Aren't we just back to everybody kind of getting out again? Not us. <laughs> oh yeah, no. That's true. All right, so we're live. Hello everybody and welcome to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. I'm your host, Ashley Roberts, and we have a very special guest for you today. We are talking with Amy Trainer about uh, a parent's perspective on due process. Um, it's a you know, it's part of our rights under IDEA in order to pursue rectifying the situation for our children. And Amy has graciously agreed to talk to us today. So, hey, Amy. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> oh, and if you heard us, we were chit-chatting about the snow. We may or may not get... <laughs> some some crazy flakes, for sure. I, I like all the memes that are saying, hey, all my Northern friends come down to Texas and get your weather. It's drunk in my backyard. <laughs> Absolutely. I know I was laying in bed last night hearing like just even the beginnings of the wind and it just sounds cold. And I'm thinking this is about as warm as it's going to be until what, next Friday, I think. Yeah, <laughs> so I think so. For our area, that's a lot. <laughs> so let's get started. Um, let's talk about... We won't say your child's name or anything like that, but let's talk about, you know, how many years was your child in public school and more to that, like when, did, you know, what grade was your child when you first started to suspect that there might be struggles with reading? So um, she actually in kindergarten, we made it about six weeks before the kindergarten teacher was um, given us that first parent teacher conference and the heads up of, I think maybe we should think about RTI, you know, literacy concepts are just not catching on like, you know, she's a math whiz. So her, her numeracy concepts were just clicking away and, and really ahead. Um, and now that I know a little bit more <laughs> about dyslexia at this point of the game, she really had indications in preschool that mm -hmm. um, even the preschool teachers and I, we just didn't know enough to know that that's what we were looking at. We probably could have saved a lot of time and effort um, on the front side had we known, but really it was right at the beginning of, of kindergartner, of our kindergarten year that we knew that there was gonna be some, maybe some literacy needs. So definitely the screening law would have benefited, but let's talk about what, if it had been in place then, which it wasn't, but um, what grade is your child in now? So she's in fifth now. So we um, struggled through, hobbled through public school for including kindergarten five years. So all the way through fourth grade. What, at what point sort of in the, in the public school years where she, you know, where did that sort of this isn't working kind of point come from? You know what I mean? I mean, obviously they started you off with RTI, but did yeah. you ever progress to a 504, an IEP, sort of where were those points and where, where were you and your husband finally at the point where you're like, this is not working? So it just in full disclosure, because, um, you know, we know each other, but a lot of people don't know my, my, my professional background. And so um, I, I'm actually in public education where I was in public education supporting kids with diverse learning needs um, as a therapist and assistive technology practitioner. And so my level of comfort and trust was different, I think. Um, I, I, I hate to think that I will trust less easily now, but that was definitely a stumbling block for us because um, I had a lot more faith in the system. Um, that there were people doing right by my kid the way that I was functioning on behalf of other students. And so I feel a lot of personal kind of guilt and remorse for being trusting and, and thinking that things were happening for my child when they weren't. Um, but I should have known to stop the RTI process, not art, stop it, but to ask for an evaluation sooner than I did. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely by the time 
she, she, I got the call about we're at risk for retention in kindergarten because of literacy. Um, at the same time that they're also doing a gifted and talented screening because she is so bright, right? It's all, all happening at the same time. And had I known then what I know now, I would have said, wait, we need a bigger picture assessment than just a gifted and talented screening. Um, we need a whole picture and see where these holes really are. But it was truly once we started first grade, when first grade was started without any support, the way that we had had daily RTI all the way through kindergarten, right? And so then we start first grade and parent-teacher conference comes around. Oh, we're not at level, we're at tier two and all this, but not, no mention at that point of any support. And I didn't because I trusted mm -hmm. that the experts were had had the handle on it. But then by about Christmas that year, um, later in the year, her math grades were falling and she was refusing to cooperate, which was not my sweets disposition at all. Um, and so I knew that the, we had a bigger challenge ahead of us. Did you, were you able to progress to, what did you progress to, a 504 or an IEP? Or, did, or was there a stair step in there? Well, um, I wasn't going to fool around with a 504, um, just with my knowledge and experience um, with law. Um, and, and providing special education support that I knew that there was not really a need um, to, to mess with the 504. That wasn't where we were at that point. And so I just went full hog and requested the FIE. Um, and of course they look like, I mean, like I had six heads because here's this, she is a bright, amazing kid. Mm -hmm. um, and they were not seeing the struggles necessarily because they were, we were seeing them at home despite her grades falling, despite all these other things that we were seeing. They were, they were not significant. She wasn't failing, but it wasn't her level of performance and they were definitely falling mm -hmm. as they related to literacy. So um, that's what we did. Um, we requested the FIE. They looked at me like I had six heads. They begrudgingly did it because um, they had to, it was in writing. <laughs> so, um, but then they denied her. So just the, the evaluation was not fabulous. It was, there was lots of holes um, in it, and there were some areas of concern, but because the teacher had said, oh, everything's fine in the classroom, everything was fine. And so um, that led to a, our initial, <laughs> the initial review was a disagreement. You know, I, I wasn't going to go with that. Um, and so we went ahead with an IEE. So things were always a little bit challenging from the beginning. Um, had a year um, with an amazing teacher, our second grade teacher was heaven sent for sure. Um, we call her our, our um, what is the Polacco book now? I, Fokker, Mr. Fokker. We call her our Mr. Fokker. And she was like, we gave her the book and she made me cry. And she worked so hard um, with us together mm -hmm. that it was an amazing year. And then that was a great, that was a great year. But that was about the only one that was fabulous. Kindergarten was great. And second grade was great. Um, but the other years were very challenging. So because our audience is kind of wide, FIE is a very Texas-based term. So what it means is full individual evaluation. It's the idea evaluation for everybody outside of Texas. Sorry about that. <laughs> I speak Texas through and through. <laughs> I know. So do I. <laughs> um, and IEE, I think, is a pretty universal term. But just, just for everybody else, it's um, independent educational evaluation. So it's, it's the protest that you basically get the protest evaluation, if you want, off of the initial independent evaluation that you get from the school, if you disagree with their findings. Yeah, it's a, it's your second opinion, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's any, anything that the school evaluates, you can have one done outside the school as well at the at public expense. Yes. Good point. <laughs> um, so you did the IE, they granted you the IEP after that? Um, they did. They did grant me the IEE and, um, you know, what, they fold, filed her um, folder into DNQ and plopped it away wherever, <laughs> wherever that goes into Never Never Land. Um, and we proceeded with procuring the IEE. Um, that's not a fast and easy process if anybody has ever done that because um, a lot of times the providers that the district have kind of on their approved list um, either aren't always accessible or you may want to think twice. Um, about providing, um, you know, getting your kids IEE done on a, on an already pre-approved vendor list, um, may not be as independent as you would like. 
Right. Um, so finding that and finding someone who would agree to the penance that they would pay um, for the, you know, it's not fast. So it took a while is what I'm saying. And so by the time we were actually in the IE process and getting that taken care of, we were starting second grade. So it took, um, our, dis a long time. our disagreement was in the spring, right around probably spring break of second grade, of uh, first grade. Okay. So it took a while to get the IEE approved and then the whole process. And then I mean, the summer, right? Like, right. I probably could have done a little bit more over the summer, but you know, moms. Um, it's summer. <laughs> it's summer. My, my poor kid is like struggling. So I'm not going to do that to her either. Right. So there's right. that mental health balance. But um, so we're doing the IEE process and our amazing second grade teacher calls me right from the beginning. I mean, we may not have made it in two or three weeks and is freaking out legit about literacy levels. And I said, I'm so thankful that you called and I'm thankful that you recognize this because here's where we are. She had no idea that all of this was going on with IEE and the referral because the file was on a shelf somewhere in some other building. <laughs> they washed their hands of being concerned of it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but now because she was concerned, it escalated the campuses concerned a little bit. You know, they couldn't shove it off as easily. Right. So um, we, we got the IEE done definitely had three areas of SLD and reading according to that and dyslexia um, came back the district wanted to do more testing I mean so we're like totally lengthening out this whole child find responsibility so <laughs> it's crazy and I'm like no two weeks if you want some more numbers you can have them in two weeks we're not playing this game anymore because she's struggling and mm -hmm. school is no fun for her anymore so that's that was a long process um so really we did end up with an IEE, I mean an IEP um, about two years after we started the whole recognizing there was a problem in kindergarten. So two years. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you said D and Q earlier. Yep, yep. The D and Q is, did not qualify. So when they did her initial evaluation, even though there were um, sub scores that were concerning and, and um, depressed, especially related to her cognitive functioning, um, they said, no, she, because she was fine in the classroom, according to the teacher, there was no problem. Right. Yeah. Unfortunate story that a lot of us, a lot of us hear, right? We, I, yeah, it's, that's what I say frequently talking to parents. I'm like, it's the same story with a different kid and a different parent name. Yeah. Um, so this, this is a question I sort of like to ask parents when I talk to them, because, you know, every parent's at a different place. Like you said, you were a public education professional, you're an OT, ATP. Um, did, was dyslexia something that you felt like you understood really well, or through this journey with your child, is dyslexia something that you feel like you've learned a great deal more about? Uh, definitely. We all learned a lot, right? We all became <laughs> dyslexia experts pretty much overnight when, when you have to, but, you know, I did have a level of knowledge that was different. I know than, than the typical parent, but it wasn't necessarily to the cognitive process of reading. Mm -hmm. um, it was more in how to support students doing what they need to do at school. So identifying the holes and being able to support those while the supposed instruction is taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, and supporting a kid to function and participate. Um, definitely, I think it helped, or it has helped just in my knowledge of um, the evidence that's required for a therapeutic intervention mm -hmm. and how that, how that should translate to um, instructional practices, whether it does or not doesn't, that's up to question a lot of times, um, but it, that, that I think was one of my big red flags um, professionally was how could the expectation for me as a therapist mm -hmm. differ so significantly under the same law, under the same guiding principles, if you will, as for my child's for her education. So that was, that's been a big battle for me um, personally, trying to kind of right that ship. Yeah, definitely. Um, so she's in second grade. It was a two-year journey to get to the IEP. Where are you in second grade when you got the IEP? Like mid-year, early? It was right at Thanksgiving. So okay. right at Thanksgiving, we got the IEP, um, started dyslexia, um, Jenna dyslexia. Right. 
um, and had an IEP. Okay. Um, was she, did she start to progress or where was, so forgive me if I'm wrong. I think you began the due process process at the beginning of last school year, right? Yep. Okay. So that would have been the beginning of her fourth grade year. So right. you've got an almost, but not quite full two-year gap between you get the IEP and you begin the due process filing. Right. What, what kind of happened in that almost two-year time frame that you felt like things weren't weren't working the way that they should have been. I mean, you've already talked about, of course, you know, the difference in the therapy levels, of course. And right. right. Um, I think the real difference for us was truly our general education teacher, mm -hmm. um, especially in second grade, um, because she was a phonics kind of old school teacher and taught the way we all learned how to read, right? It was a phonic. And so she, and she was so vested in my daughter's success. I mean, she was heavily invested. She, she there was nothing she wasn't gonna do. She, nothing she wouldn't do to help, help her succeed. Um, and so I accredit a lot of the growth. We did see good growth in second grade because of her, mm -hmm. but that's where it ended. Um, third grade was a waste. Um, her IEP actually had documented regression um, that it baffles me that that's even tolerated. Um, so third grade, while she was happy because her teachers, we, that's the other thing. I mean, our teachers, we never had teachers that I didn't feel like didn't care about mm -hmm. her and they weren't ugly ever mm -hmm. to where I hear horror stories from people about, you know, the ways their, their kids have been treated because they struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and that was not ever our experience. We actually, we had great teachers that truly did care. It, they were unsupported and not properly trained to be doing what we needed to have done. Right. Um, but third grade was a total waste. We made clearly no progress um, at all. Um, and then by fourth grade, when I'm recognizing the problem of third grade and that nobody thought to provide any extra support when we're regressing, you know, all of these things and I'm asking for extra support and hearing, oh gosh, that, you know, we're not worried about that now. You know, we can't ask for ESY now, that was in the past. And it was just totally mind blowing to me that this was their, you know, the responsibility of the LEA, right? The educational mm -hmm. agency to, to do these things. And it was a total breach of contract, right? Like nothing <laughs> happened the way it was supposed to happen. And I'm thinking, God, you know, and so I start asking for more support. You know, I'm, I never went into any of our meetings, um, ugly or hostile or never had an advocate because I didn't feel like we needed one. We had great working relationships, I mm -hmm. thought, you know. Um, and so it didn't start off like it finished, right? Like you finished with the tone of due process in your, in your mouth. It was never that way. Right. Um, it was always, it was always cordial. Um, but I think that was when I really realized I was like, uh oh, so I asked for help. I asked for help from our administrator. I'm like here we have this great guidance about what your, the IEP needs to look like for a kid with dyslexia had been out from our education agency for a while. She'd never mm -hmm. seen it, never seen it. I'm like, oh, well, I shouldn't be the first one to show this to you, but here you go. And that was that, you know, um, lots of things. Then I think that the, the final straw was it took us about eight to 10 weeks from the initial annual date to kind of come up with something that a pill we could swallow as far as agreeing, because I didn't agree with the plan that they were proposing, that it wasn't going to close the gaps that were created in the year prior and certainly not anywhere near what she needed to be doing to prepare for fourth and fifth and on. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'd asked an instructional officer, you know, somebody in our administration, I said, you know, please, could you please come help thinking that this was just a dialogue problem? You know, I'm not, I'm not expressing myself correctly. I don't know what's going on. Can you come help? And I realized that when she came and helped facilitate writing an IEP to use accommodations instead of actually learning an instruction, I thought, oh, this is not this is not going well. 
And that was kind of my big point of like, okay, well, I have tried everything I know and I do not want to have to go through due process. Um, and that wasn't really, that was really the last straw. Um, but I knew that we were going to have to do something pretty major. Yeah. So that was a question I wanted to ask you, you know, cause there's, I think due process is a thing that impacts an entire family, right? Everybody in your family is invested in what's actually happening. So can you tell me a little bit maybe about how y'all came to the decision? Was it just you and your husband? Did you discuss it with your children? Were they a part of the decision-making process? Were they informed? You know, kind of how did that dynamic work? Uh, it was definitely a conversation for quite a while between my husband and I initially. Um, we, we talk a lot with our kids about and make decisions as a family with all of us. Um, so we definitely addressed it with them, with our oldest who um, is four years older, um, who's still in the schools, um, was gonna possibly impact him. Mm -hmm. Definitely with our daughter, who it was impacting the most. Um, and, and really involving her to the point of helping her, you know, school became traumatic to her, right? Like it was an awful experience for us. COVID happening and schools closing was such a blessing because I could say, you never have to go back there again. I don't know what we're going to do, but I am not going to send you back there where the whole experience is traumatizing. You don't have to go back. So I, we had been, you know, reassuring her that what her, what her experience wasn't her fault mm -hmm. and, it, and she was doing everything that she could do. We were trying to make this right by her, mm -hmm. um, which is why we involved her in some of the conversation. Once we had it kind of thought through enough that we were like, okay, we know you don't have to go back. You can be a part of the conversation of what's next. Are we going to homeschool? We're going to private school. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. That was where we were involving her. And then when it really came to the decision about due process with her, are you okay if we do this? Are you okay if we make it public? Because professionally, I knew that the cards are not in a parent's favor ever and especially here right and we know that and we knew that going in um but what my purpose in the whole thing was really to help kind of bring light to what was going on and helping other parents understand whether we we prevailed or not i mean that we should have prevailed <laughs> but whether we prevailed or not it gave us an opportunity and, and a platform to be able to share what i knew professionally and what i had experienced as a parent and help other parents see in their own child's experience what they could be facilitating some for better results for them. Right. Um, so you make the decision as a family, you, you move forward with filing due process. Let's talk about the preparation process. Uh. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you choose an attorney, you know, but I, I think that this is sort of the thing that a lot of people don't understand, especially about due process. You know, they think that you just file and then there's some meetings potentially or because not a whole lot of families go all the way to due process. Right. right? So what is it like to, to go through that preparation? I mean, I know what you went through. <laughs> you do. Uh, so I think it helps if you're organized from the beginning, because um, while we asked for the records request, the educational records request from the district, just on the chance that there was anything that we didn't already have, mm -hmm. um, I had already maintained pretty impeccable records um, to be able to know and to be able to see what was going on. And I think when you make the decision to go through due process, you have to have data that supports because you have to prove without a shadow of a doubt and then some right okay. that there was any wrongdoing and so um i think a lot of a lot of families get caught in what they want for their kid and is this as well as they could have done and you know i know as dyslexia families that's something we all struggle with because our kids by and large are highly capable and highly intelligent. And we see districts that are okay with that achievement gap. Right. Right. And I think that sometimes parents can want that. We all want that, right? I'm, I'm not 
but as far as the, the public school's responsibility is not to meet that high level of achievement that's mm -hmm. been established, right? And that's what you get caught up on emotionally. But you have to have the data that supports the lack of implementation or whatever. Like, what are the real holes um, in, in, in doing that? So having the records, having the whole thing really <laughs> already laid out before you have an attorney is what you're going to have to do. Um, if you, if you go that route. Um, and really when you're considering that for us, um, there was only one option that was going to make any sense. And that was, um, private school. Um, so that was the relief that we requested. I think that doesn't always bode well in a hearing officer's decision-making process because of the expense and because of kind of the Pandora's box that that opens. Right. Um, I think that if, if you're okay in the decision-making process and the thought process that the relief that you're going to request can be provided and implemented at the district level, you have a, a, a greater chance of prevailing, mm -hmm. right? Because the, just the expense alone um, is easier to, to swallow up. The pill is easier to swallow for the educational agency mm -hmm. and the state. So, I mean, you, you said a lot in that, and that was an incredibly awesome response. Let's talk right. about showing some of the- Yeah, huh? sit down, make me go back. <laughs> Let's talk about like showing those gaps, like you mean. Um, you know, when I think when you've got a 504, it's definitely harder to be able to show those gaps necessarily because you don't have the breadth of evaluations potentially. Um, you know, one, one thing that I gleaned from your due process was, you know, all of these teachers reports versus actual hard data. So, you know, that's, you know, in the world that I exist in from a, from a business perspective, that's, you know, we wouldn't even call that apples to oranges, you know, that's like apples to llamas. So <laughs> where, <laughs> they're, they're not, not even- llamas. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, they're not even in the same, you know, not in the same scientific thing. category. <laughs> so how do you, how do you glean the process? How do you glean the data necessary in order to show, you know, with, with an average or above average IQ, whatever it is, you know, the child should, it's, it's not unrealistic to say that the child should be achieving grade level. And not only are they not achieving grade level, but in the case of your daughter, she was regressing beyond that as well. So, which means she made gains and then she's falling backwards. So how do you, I mean, what would you recommend to parents that are considering due process and how to necessarily show that Delta? Um, I think, I think that at this point, I would tell any parent starting kindergarten to read whatever procedural safeguards and whatever guard I, um, process like special ed process guide for parents, whatever your state has should be required reading for income kindergartners mm -hmm. because nobody starts kindergarten, nobody starts school unless you've been provided, you know, early childhood intervention, unless you have an obvious um, outside the box learning need, right? You mm -hmm. don't necessarily start kindergarten thinking that you've got dyslexia or thinking any of these things and you really have to be prepared for this end game from day one you yeah. know because I looking back I think God, if I would have just done this or you know kept on them about this or whatever I think my biggest thing would be to if you can if you're mm -hmm. at all concerned about your kiddos learning needs to have some objective progress monitoring um, I know with with reading with literacy that's easy you can do easy cbm you can do a doubles you can do all these things that are don't require a teacher necessarily to facilitate and do you know you could hire somebody or, or find someone to do some progress monitoring and benchmarking outside of your child's 504 iep i would totally do that again in a heartbeat mm -hmm. um like i said at the beginning i trusted mm -hmm. um i trusted that there would be data to reflect upon when in fact, when we're in due process hearing, we're hearing the testimony that the data was in the shred box. So there was no even data to go back and look upon for this regression. So yeah, so I think that would be one of the big things. Um, just assume that you, if you don't ever have to need to know this bed process, then you're great. 
but learning it when you're in the throes of it, time is of the essence, right? There's no, time is never in the favor of the child or the family. Right. Um, and so I think knowledge is power and being able to plug in, right? Making sure that um, I think because of our generation, the way that special education and learning differences um, were stigmatized, yeah. if you will. I mean, I remember in elementary school, there was two classes and they were at the end of the hall and it was, there was no integration and it's, it was not what it should have been at all, but that changed yeah. the way we all think about it, right? It just right. does. So I think it takes a lot of parental mindset, willpower, if you will, to be willing to talk about it because you're not alone. You and your kid are not alone. And I think the bigger, the more you can be relatable mm -hmm. and help with somebody else and being open to asking for help too, right? Being able to connect. So some of those kinds of things, hindsight being 2020 from the beginning, plugging in, being more knowledgeable about the process um, and having that outside benchmarking, if you will, and, and data collection, um, I think would have made it a little bit easier. Um, and definitely knowing the, the data collection that is taking place in the school, what that looks like, how it's done, and making sure that you have your hands on it mm -hmm. um, in the moment. Right. But I think that that's like, those are important call outs and I don't know from a parent perspective with like what we're doing with DI and trying to educate and empower people. I don't know that that's something, you know, off the top of my head, I think that that's going to be one of our greatest struggles is how do you educate parents going into school about the SPED process, you know, because it is such a daunting process. I know, uh, like, like you said, with our generation, it was such a stigmatized thing. And I know when I pursued SPED for my own child, I didn't really know anybody. I wasn't really tapped into, into the community. I had just heard that this is what I needed to do if I really wanted to get more for what he needed and give myself more teeth within the process, right? So I pursued this thing without really kind of understanding the whole ramification of what I was pursuing, both positive and negative. And I remember I got it and I was so terrified to come home and tell my husband, by the way, honey, I've just classed our kid as sped. I was terrified of that conversation because, you know, he's four years older than I am. You know, he's part of the same, or he was part of that same educational What's the word that I want? Dynamic. I mean, it was just the scene. It was the landscape. It was, right. the, it, it was that educational segregation that existed between SPED and non-SPED, right? So I just, I was terrified to tell him. And I remember, you know, I think I drank a glass of wine and I worked up the courage and I looked at him and I said, honey, so this is the thing that I've done. <laughs> Forgiveness, not permission. That's my kind of girl. <laughs> Yeah, no, I never asked for permission. I just asked for forgiveness. <laughs> All the things. <laughs> but, you know, I was prepared for fireworks and he just turned around and he said the most wonderful thing that I think he could ever possibly say, which he said, our son learns in a very specific way. So of course he needs to be taught in a very specific way. And if that's special education, then that's special education. Not knowing, you know, like I know now, like you know now, you know, all SPED parents know now about how special education was completely redone. Um, just so it's not the same thing that it was before. It's a completely different thing. And I have people question me about, you know, why would I do that to my son? Because they're from the, a generation that that was the stigma. You know, and they're like, well, are you going to take him off before he graduates from high school so that he doesn't have to have that on his diploma? And I'm like, wow, you really. <laughs> it's just a lack of knowledge. Right. You know, it's something. And that's where that when when parents can have those conversations and be comfortable with it. Um, it helps change the mindset. Right. Of, for everybody's experience. Right. Because, you know. I think it. It should also be mentioned too in this whole what our what our experience was growing up is that literacy was also taught. Right. What science says literacy should be taught. And so we didn't have 
the difficulties, I am quite confident that what we have experienced mm-hmm. would have maybe not even been a real issue right. had gen ed curriculum and instruction been done the way that we all had it done, the way that we were taught to read by the science of reading, the way the brain learns to read versus guessing, you know, actual decoding and encoding versus mm-hmm. what do you think it looks good to me, um, would have, would change the song completely. Sometimes I wish my grandmother, my grandmother was still alive because she was a teacher. She actually had a master's in education. She got her master's in education in the sixties. You know, she's from rural Arkansas and she goes and gets a master's in education, which I just think is amazing. I, a lot of me wishes she was still alive because I would love to interview her on this subject more than anything else. Because I think if she knew, it would just, it would be devastating. Yeah. So so many ways. Yeah. And so she was um, literature, English, language arts, high school principal certification, like all the things. So I was like, that public education is my jam, right? That that should be where everybody learns. And so that that was a big hurdle for us, for me personally, was making that shift to private and knowing that that was really our only answer at the time. It was painful, right? It was very painful to me um, to have that like real reality. But yeah, so my mom, I'm thinking, gosh, if she was, you know, she passed away when I was pregnant with Olivia. So she, I'm like, oh my gosh, mom, you could have totally done this whole thing. Would never have had this problem because she would have known how to do it. But you know, these are the life curves that you get. But um, yeah, I think that that goes without saying is that the way that we were all taught was totally different than what's historically what our kids have been doing. Hopefully we're seeing some of that change um, and our grandkids will be taught the way that we were maybe. <laughs> we can hope, right? <laughs> we can work. That's what we're working on, right? So I, somebody's got to read. Absolutely. So let's talk about the hearing process. You opted for a public hearing, which was amazingly brave. And I loved how advocates across the entire country were watching and commenting throughout all that. <laughs> like, especially all the, oh, hell no, comments yeah. at different points. Those she did not, good. yeah. <laughs> Wait, she just said what? <laughs> shred box? So tell me, um, tell me what it was like to, because it was a three-day hearing. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much all day long for three straight days, right? Yeah. Um, what was it like to go through the hearing process? exhausting. I mean, that goes without saying, right? Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, because of all of this, we were virtual. And so I only had to meander out to the dining room, (laughs) you know, and it wasn't quite as emotionally taxing to get to a location and all of that. So I think that was more on because you're Yeah, to be more on, although I am much more effective in person. So (laughs) I think that was kind of a demise. Yeah. Um, but just to have the opportunity for so many people to, to partake and to be able to watch, that was a huge blessing because um, that many people would not have benefited from our experience, even in an open hearing, if it would have been at an admin building, right? Yeah. You, we could not have had the reach that we had, which was crazy to see the numbers of people that watched while the, the videos were still live. Mm-hmm. Um, it would not have been possible. So that was exhausting. Um, I think at this point, the most troubling to me about the experience of the hearing is that the burden of proof is on the family, right? The the parents have to prove, 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 even when you have all the data, you have to prove and keep proving where there was a wrong, if there was, right? and I think when you're leading into this whole thing, I mean, we all have been at the table, right? Whether you're at a 504 table or an IEP table, in most instances, it's not truly a partnership, right? Mm-hmm. IDEA wants it to be, and that's why we're named first. You know, parents are, are expected to be the expert, mm-hmm. they're expected as such, and we know that that doesn't happen. Okay. So you're already up against that, but you finally, you know, I think I finally felt, oh my gosh, this is my chance. This is my hearing. This is my opportunity to put it all out there. And it was still not equitable. It was still 
the way that our hearing officer divided out the time, divided out the opportunity, I thought, this is my, this is all my dime, right? Like I'm the one having to foot the bill for the attorney. I'm the one having to foot the bill for the expert testimony, mm-hmm. being out of work, all of the other things that go into this. And, and she shot the time. So, so unfavorably, truly mm-hmm. not giving us an opportunity to put all of the cards on the table, the way that we should have been able to, um, and then stop the hearing early. <laughs> so it was um, it was a very big learning experience um, that was exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, I left that hopeful because of what we heard, because of what we did see happen, and mm-hmm. the testimony that was given and the exhibits that were allowed to be produced. That was, I think, the other thing, the other learning experience of what is a hearing officer going to allow to be mm-hmm. produced as an as, as an exhibit. Um, we had asked for the um, fidelity statement and evidence to support the intervention method to be provided to us as part of our, you know, um, discovery. And they said, nah, it's not important. It's irrelevant to the case. I'm like, how? That idea calls out the necessity of fidelity. Exactly. I mean, so I think going into it, you have to know you're up against a huge mountain. You know, this is, it's a big hurdle and you have to be okay with not prevailing because you probably won't. I think one of the most glaring things to me in the, you know, I didn't get to sit and watch all all three days um, while it was live. Um, I was watching like an hour here, three hours there kind of a thing (laughs) across. One of the most glaring things to me was the Uh, what's the word that I want? The interaction between between the people. You know, there was definitely a different personal dynamic between the district staff and attorneys and hearing officer versus you and your attorney and the hearing officer. I mean, it was almost two completely different types of. It was my hearing, my attorney and myself on trial. Right. Trying to justify why I wasn't crazy for thinking, for thinking that she should have actually made progress. Right. That's crazy, right? Why would you expect progress going to school? You know? Um, and that's what it, that's what it really came down to. You know, we were the ones on trial. Mm-hmm. We were the ones that were like at fault, if you right. will, even questioning why, even though their, their testimony was telling us why we should ever have trusted them in the first place. Right. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, and again, another one of the most profound things and what a lot of your case hinged on was the disparity between the understanding of comprehension versus fluency. And, you know, the the constant harping of her, her comprehension is great. Her comprehension is great. Her comprehension is great. Her comprehension is great. It's like a broken record for three straight days. And you're sitting here going fluency is a core foundation that plays a role in comprehension. Her comprehension may be great for, you know, a second grader or a third grader, but that doesn't mean that it's true comprehension. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, um, you know, where we are and in our state specific and their total disregard for IDEA. I mean, they are in corrective action and I, I suspect that it's not even going to be okay. I mean, I, I suspect we will have some pretty significant fines coming still from the DOE department of education. Um, related to TEA's negligence <laughs> and allowing all this to happen for so long. But it, that kind of feeds into um, the lack of understanding. You know, part of the corrective action was to train hearing officers. Well, they mm-hmm. have yet to prove that they've done that, um, despite all of us as um, constituents and taxpayers thinking that all of these things are happening and they're not. You know, mm-hmm. the hearing officers have no idea what they're looking at. And, um, a district's going to testify whatever is going to help them not have to pay private school tuition. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's very selective truth telling, you know, um, and, and partial truths, because what we saw was not what should have been being done, but why it was justifiable that it was not sufficient. 
And I think it's important to call out with that. How is your daughter doing in, in a private school that is geared towards the science of reading and dyslexia intervention? What is, she, she struggled, she was regressing in public school and now she's in a school specifically for her learning type. Mm -hmm. How is she doing? Amazing. Um, near miraculous is what I say at this point. Um, you know, I, we are unique in that I say a lot of times that with Olivia, it's just dyslexia. It's just the reading. We don't have a lot of the, the comorbid things going on, um, which is very rare, right? Most right. students that have a specific learning disability or maybe have ADHD or have some other complicating thing. Now we did have a, a significant bout with anxiety and depression at the hand of the trauma that we experienced in school. But since we have been supported in the educational learning environment that actually teaches, <laughs> that has subsided significantly. You know, that's no longer an issue for her. Um, but she, you know, this is, you know, in all of my conversations with people and still trying to move the needle for Texas students, you know, we started when the teacher, our Mr. Falker, when, when that teacher was really concerned, we were about six months behind, mm. wise, right? So our district uses FNP, which we know is complete crap. Fontes and Pinnell. <laughs> sorry, which is total garbage. And you right. have to actually do that benchmarking with Fidelity, which was never done with Fidelity. Um, what I mean by that is that when you look at the expectations, you have the grade level, you have the letter expectation, and you also have a fluency level. And so when you're, I think FNP says around level J, which is, I think that's the end of first grade into second grade is when you start taking those fluency probes. Okay. So you have I to just get remember what it is for the end of second grade, which right. is you have to get to a certain <laughs> level of FNP before they'll even do the fluency probes, but they have to be done mm -hmm. for us. They were never being done. So here's this huge objective, truly much more objective measure that was never being done. So mm -hmm. it was a haphazard. Yes, we can decode this level of word if we give her six hours, of course. I mean, we've got this kid with a super, she's super intelligent. Sure, she can figure this out, right? So we start second grade about six months behind. We start fifth grade this year and we had lots of different um, assessments that were the same third party, neuropsych, school, all the things that said the same thing. She started fifth grade at a second grade reading level. Hmm. So in three years, at the hand of gen ed dyslexia and special education IEP support, how much did we grow? Not even a year. If we start second grade six months behind and we start fifth grade at second grade level, we've made nothing. Right. But when we start in this amazing school that actually has teachers trained in the science of reading, trained the way children's brains learn how to read, she was at grade level within, well within the first semester. That's um, huge. It's huge and it and not just, you know, at this point I, we're entering into private school and I am rigid and skeptical and a progress monitoring crazy person because I have allowed <laughs> this to happen on, on my watch, right? Like I feel mm -hmm. very, as a parent responsible for not being on top of it as I thought, as I think I should have, right? Hindsight, we all have that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm asking them for data all the time and bless them for just dealing with me and knowing, and knowing that they were going to be able to make a change because they did what needed to happen. Mm -hmm. And I was just, they were just gonna have to appease me until we were seeing it. But it really wasn't even the numbers that were coming home. She was reading signs right? Like we're going, we're doing the commute to and from school and she's reading signs she's never read before. She is reading menu items, unfortunately, now that I could always exclude if I didn't want that to be an option. Now she's reading the menu for herself. <laughs> you know, all these things that are the real life things, you know? Yeah, and no, they don't have mac and cheese. It's not on the menu. Yeah, there's only protein on this menu. <laughs> no mac and cheese, no corn dogs, just, you know, good chicken or something. No, yeah. So, um, yeah, so those things were kind of have kind of been a downer, but um, I'm watching her also read and making books, 
book choices and hearing the change. We started this year, fifth grade, she was reading Puppy Place, which is a great series written at about a second grade level. Mm -hmm. And now she's reading grade level appropriate books. Now the fluency I know is always going to be slower. Her rate is always going to be slower and I'm totally cool with that. Yeah. But it's still way better than it's ever been. Right. And it's at grade level and with full comprehension she's able to stop and say, oh my gosh, mom, what do you, you know, he must've been thinking and she actually his like that whole metacognitive thinking about what you're reading and making it the connections to yourself and to what your, your experiences have been. And then to be able to jump back in and continue reading with comprehension, like those kinds of things. That's what I see. Um, and spelling, they actually teach spelling. So um, we went from not being able to spell even sight words from kindergarten in fourth grade to, I think gladiator was one of our spelling words last week and it was no big deal. Oh wow. So, um, it's, it's a huge difference. So you've, I think you've covered a lot of this, but I still want to ask the question. So as, as a parent and as a pretty outspoken advocate at this point, what do you feel like were hands down your biggest learnings having gone through this process? Um, the biggest, um, the trust. Like two or three. <laughs> I think the trust and I don't, I don't want people to go into this jaded. Um, but I think that you have to be, you have to anticipate plan for the worst and expect the best truly. I mean, like plan that you're going to have to go to due process and work to not have to do that. Um, I don't think that given the tone, especially of our educational system here specifically, that due process is a fabulous answer um, unless you're talking about like major residential um, day treatment, you know, something that's got a really high price tag, truly, because right. the cost emotionally and financially to go to through due process is significant. Um, and right now, because here in Texas, the statute of limitation is bunk and it's only a year, um, by the time you realize a problem is there and you try to work with anybody and you try to work, then you're out of, out of timelines, you're out of statute timelines. And so um, you either have to decide you're going to do it and pull the trigger immediately when you decide you disagree, like right then or the day before, um, or just work really hard to avoid it. Um, and although I, I say that, but I'm like, I, we worked very hard um, and I thought we had a solid IEP and we just had lack of fidelity and implementation. Yeah. Um, and because you called out the statute of limitations and I, um, I would have looked it up if I had known we would hit on that, but within the Texas legislative session right now, there is a bill on the floor. House to, bill 52. Which one? House bill 1252. That's and it. So what that's planning to do, what, if it approves, and if you're in Texas, you better contact your legislatures because it is highly impactful to families maybe not yours, but it will be your neighbor, um, to expand from our one year to the two years that is, is set forth. Um, most other states have two, but that's what IDEA, yeah. I don't know how we've gotten along with one year, but you know, it's Texas, they don't agree with IDEA anyway. No, they don't, but please contact your legislator, legislators, sorry, that's not a word I can say very easily. Um, we definitely need that bill to pass if you're in the state of Texas. Make the phone call. Let's let's push this one through. Um, but so there's one more question I want, I want to ask you. And again, I think you've already said this, but I, I wanted to sort of highlight this particular answer. What advice would you give to parents who are considering or should consider due process? It's a, that's loaded. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but it's just, it's so personal, you know, and not, um, I think right now it depends where you are. And I know I keep saying it and I hate, I hate it because it shouldn't be this way, but until the tune of Texas education changes, I would avoid due process, even though the, the benefits are 
that you had the opportunity to impact case law, which is going to impact other people. Um, go for it. If you if you are confident, um, if you're not afraid of the consequences, you know, if you can go into it knowing that you probably will will not prevail, right? And you are secure in the commitment of your emotions, of your finances, of whatever else needs to happen, go for it, right? You don't, you don't know, but you have to assume that you probably won't prevail. Um, and if you do it, I would say from experience, go ahead and make it open because you still, even if you don't prevail, have the opportunity to impact many families. I think that would be it. I think um, having an experienced um, attorney, ours was new and I, I, say, I say that, I don't know that it really would have mattered truly because of the, the obvious um, relationship between our district's legal counsel and the hearing officer, which was palpable, right? Like you could just see, could see the relationship. Yeah. Um, it would not have mattered. I could have had, gosh, I don't even know any famous attorneys, but like I could have had some monster famous attorney and it would not have probably mattered. So maybe that's, maybe that's another thing too, is maybe, you know, just weigh your options as far as financially, like what can you afford and what's the outcome going to be? Right. Um, there's just not an easy answer. There definitely isn't. Um, you know, as your friend, I thought that it was incredibly brave. I admired you immensely for doing it and having the courage to make it public because it is such a daunting thing. You know, it's, it's such a commitment. I definitely have the gumption to do it, <laughs> but I'm like, do, you know, all of the ramifications. I mean, you were talking about, you know, you were preparing your son who's four years older, who's still within that public school system, you know, how it may impact him. And I think that that's a critical piece for parents as well. The cards are definitely stacked against us in this state in a horribly unequitable way. I can't say that word apparently either. So, well, and, but, I think, uh, and even not just in the state, because I think even, you know, as we as friends and whatever have kind of learned since even since our experience, right, which kind of, you know, we got our hearing the ruling at the end of December, not all that long ago, have still learned that there are districts that are doing way better. Oh, I oh, mean, yeah. night and day better and providing evidence based intervention with truly trained interventionists and not what we're experiencing here. Right you know, they're, they actually do write goals for learning objectives instead of using accommodations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that's, that's the caveat too, is that, you know, by and large, Texas has a lot of room to grow and to do better, but um, it all comes down. I mean, it's all constitution too, right? Like the federal government gives all the states the authority. And then even further here, the state, we're all these little ISDs. So it's kind of, even further self-monitoring and accountable, you know, which sets up problems, but districts are doing it and there are districts that are doing better. So. Definitely. Yeah. Well, with that, I think we should wrap up. We're pretty much on the hour. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun, right? I know, right? <laughs> so thank you for joining us today and going through this. I know that this isn't an easy conversation for you, but um, it's one that you're passionate about sharing. And I definitely know our community is grateful for that. So thank you. And I all the effort DI is doing too, because it is a collective effort between parents and, and educators and staff that are wanting to do better and are willing to do better um, to be able to do this as partnership, because that's the only way it's going to happen. Agree, completely agree. So to everybody in Texas, stay warm, stay inside. <laughs> run, your, run the water in your pipes. <laughs> I almost melted last night. My husband had the heater on so high. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to melt to keep everything from freezing. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So yeah. 
but thank you and everybody have a great weekend and what so Coffee Talk will be back next week with Peggy Stern of Super Deville. Um, this episode remains on our Facebook page and we will upload it to our podcast and our YouTube pretty quickly after this is over. So you can watch it, Facebook, YouTube, podcast, it's all there. Great. Well, thanks, Ash. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Good Amy. Good night. Bye. Bye.